0: Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves purses which do not wear out, and an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The essence of worship we have seen now repeatedly is the inner act of the heart treasuring God as infinitely valuable. That's the essence of worship. The outer forms of worship are the acts that one does which show or reflect how much the heart treasures God. Therefore, we saw, all of life, biblically, is supposed to be worship because the Bible says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, all of life, do it such that the value that you put on the glory of God is plain. So if you drink, if you eat, if you take naps, if you do choir, if you write poems, if you drive big steamrollers over new parking lots, do it worshipfully, that is magnify the worth of God in the way you do it. Money is a big part of all of life. Big part. And therefore, the way we use our money is to be worship. So this is a of the bigger picture of all of life and therefore if you spend if you work if you earn if you give if you save if you invest you are to think do this in a way that shows how precious and valuable and all-sufficient God is to me not to money. And then your use of money becomes worship. That's what this text is about. Now in corporate worship, which is what we do here, we said last week there is a place for corporate worship. The body gathered to worship. The same definitions hold sway. The essence of what we're doing here is invisible to everybody but God. The essence. And the essence is, are you right now, as you listen to this sermon, listening in such a way that reflects how precious God is to you? And am I so preaching that the preaching echoes the excellency of God in my affections and according to his true worth. And then there's praying, and then there's singing, and then there's instrumental playing, and then there's silence, and then there's giving and other things, which we call acts of worship. And what makes them acts of worship or not They're not automatically acts of worship. What makes them acts of worship or not is whether they are coming from this treasuring of God out and thus express the value that God has for our hearts. And if they don't, they are not worship for the person who is not expressing them in that way. They are simply the traditions of men. One of those acts is called giving or offering. And it's all about money and what we do with money. And so I want to focus on the bigger picture of worshiping with money, magnifying God with money, And then apply it to the particular issue of why we do this in worship. A lot of people have boxes at the back of their sanctuary. They don't put it smack in the middle of the worship service like we do. And some don't even have boxes. They do it other ways. And I think there's more than one right way. But we need to give an account for why we do it. Why? But I don't want to talk about just that little teeny event, how small that would be. The big event is how you spend your money on gifts this Christmas. The big event is how you've invested this year and what are you going to do with all those capital gains. The big event is how you teach your kids with allowances and what they do with those allowances. Those are the big issues of life when it comes to money. What kind of clothes you buy, what kind of house you buy, what kind of... Of car you buy and why and how do you support missionaries and all these questions and how you sleep at night in regard to your money so Luke 12 32 to 34 of of the dozens of texts I could have chosen is all about worshiping God with your money there are four points I want to make Many more could be made. I think I counted about 10 sermons I'd like to preach on these three verses, but I'll preach one and make four points. Number one, in verse 32 in particular, the first point is God commands us not to be afraid about money, not to have fear about money. When it comes to money things, we're not supposed to be anxious. Don't worry, don't be afraid, he says, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. That little verse there is sandwiched before and after with money. Verses 22 following are all about money, things, clothing, house, and whether you're anxious about them. And then it's followed by selling possessions and giving alms and and laying up treasures in heaven instead of on the earth. So this little verse, this beautiful, magnificent promise verse, the first point is don't Be anxious. Don't be afraid. But now there's a deeper point in this verse, and the deeper point is that when you're not afraid concerning money, you magnify five things about God, and that's worship. When you're not afraid, or anxious or fearful about money, you magnify five things about God in this one verse. And when you magnify God through not being afraid about money, you worship. Here are the five things. These are precious things that we want to magnify about God. Number one, when we're not afraid about money, we magnify God as our shepherd. Do not be afraid, little flock. The word flock means we've got a shepherd and we are sheep. And therefore, Psalm 23 kicks in. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. That word is the old Elizabethan word for lack. I shall not. Lack. I shall not be in want. That is, if I have a shepherd like this who loves to give me the kingdom, I will not lack for what I need. Therefore, if I believe that and thus exclude fear, I will magnify his shepherd love. Number two, if I do not fear concerning money, I show that I treasure God as my Father. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So not only am I or are we sheep who have a shepherd, we are children who have a Father. He's multiplying images for us here to get rid of fear. That's what he's doing. Don't be afraid your sheep who have a shepherd. Don't be afraid your children who have a father. Now, what does that imply? Well, verse 30, two verses earlier, makes pretty plain what it implies. All these things, eat, drink, wear, money things... All these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Now, he didn't say that to mock us. He said that because knowing that we need these things, he'll work to provide what we need in order to magnify his fatherhood. But now be careful. Do not come to God with an agenda defining for Him what you need. Come to God and learn from Him what you need. The word need today in America is so inflated that it scarcely has any meaning in a universal context anymore. So if we are fearless about money, we magnify him as shepherd, we magnify him as father, and that is worship. Thirdly, if we're not afraid concerning money, we show that we treasure God as our king. Do not be afraid, little flock, For your father has chosen gladly to give you the, what? Kingdom. Who has right and authority to give us the kingdom? No peon disposes of the kingdom. The king disposes of the kingdom. And therefore, not only is he a shepherd loving us as sheep, father loving us as Children, He is king, ruling us, providing for us, exerting sovereignty and power on our behalf as subjects against our enemies, including the lack of things we need. So if we trust him as king and shepherd and father and thus overcome our fear of not having enough money, Then we magnify him and he is worshipped. Fourth, if we are fearless with regard to our money, we magnify him as free and generous. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom, not sell you the kingdom, not rent you the kingdom, not lease you the kingdom for payments, mortgage payments, rent payments, lease payments. He will give you the kingdom. He loves to give you the kingdom, which means he's generous. And therefore, if we let his shepherd-like, fatherly, kingly generosity, Work on our fear, our anxieties, and I'm talking a battle here. You know I'm talking a battle here, right? We're not talking something that happened yesterday and doesn't happen tomorrow. We're talking a weekly thing, a paycheck by paycheck thing, or unemployment check by unemployment check thing. We're talking a battle here. The way we battle is by preaching to ourselves what I'm preaching right now. That's the way I do it. It ain't automatic for John Piper to be fearless about money, though I get paid plenty, way, way plenty. It isn't automatic for me, it isn't automatic for you. We are battling fear and anxiety every day, not to mention greed. And we do it by saying... He's shepherd to me. He's father to me. He's king to me. And he's not as shepherd, father and king folding his arms, standing off in the corner saying, maybe, maybe you'll get the kingdom. I'll watch your performances. It's not the way he does it. Give, give, give. Free, free, free is what the what the Lord does. And fifthly, when we overcome our fear and live free of fear, we magnify our God as happy in his giving. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom, or it is his Good pleasure, another version says, to give you the kingdom. Or another version, it pleases him. He's pleased to give you the kingdom. He wants to do this. He is not niggardly and selfish. Simony is not his virtue or vice. He is a generous God. So... The first point of this message is, trust him as shepherd, trust him as father, trust him as king, trust his generosity, and trust the fact that it's lavish because he loves to do it. Preach these things to yourself and attack fear and anxiety in your life with these truths so that when you overcome... Fear about money? God gets the glory. These five glorious things shine out of your life. And if anyone asks you, I know that you're in financial straits, and yet at work you seem to be caring about others and fairly happy. How is that? Then you say, Can I share five things with you about my God? And he is worshipped. He is worshipped. That's point number one. Point number two. Trusting God in this way carries a strong impulse toward simplicity, not accumulation. Simplicity of life, not accumulation of things. Verse 33. I think you could stick a therefore in. It isn't in the text. That's my read on the connection between 32 and 33. That 32, this gospel, beautiful picture of a generous God, is the foundation from which now comes the command... Uh, of verse 33. Therefore, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Now, focus with me on this command. Sell your possessions. Who is he talking to? Well, verse 22, the beginning of the section says, Then Jesus said to his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. These are not, by and large, rich folks. Fishermen and other types of... Now these people, he tells, "Sell your possessions and give to people in need." Now why did he say that? Well let's ask first, how, how many possessions should I sell? What do you want me to sell? The car? My books? My house? One of my coats? Which ones? Well, in chapter 18, verse 22, he said to the ruler, Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So there's one man's answer, everything. Sell everything you have and come join my band of itinerant monks. However, in chapter 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus, that wee little man, came down out of his tree and went home and got saved and said, with the Lord's great approval, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times, four times the amount. So here's another man, 50%. To one man, everything. Another man, 50% of everything you have. Sell it off, give it away. Then, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, I'm choosing these texts because they're all in Luke's writings, just to stay with the author. In Acts, chapter 4, verse 37, Barnabas, it says, Barnabas, modeling for Luke as a son of encouragement, what one ought to do in those days, Barnabas sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas sold a field. The ruler was to sell everything, Zacchaeus sold half, Barnabas sold a field. What should you sell? No answer. I'm not going to tell you, and Jesus hasn't told you. But he says, sell your possessions and give alms. Now, why? Why? Why didn't he say, go to the bank and get some cash and give it to the poor? Why the selling of things? These people are not what we call today the rich poor or poor rich who's Assets are all locked up in real estate and don't have any money. That's not who he's talking to. Usually people like that do have money. I mean, compared to others, they might not have a hundred or three hundred thousand dollars at their disposal, but they probably have ten. Because they've been taught first you save for a rainy day and get ten thousand dollars in the bank and then you accumulate. More and more and more and more and more and more and more. So it may all be locked up out there somewhere in real estate or somewhere, but, but they've got cash that they can use to give to the poor. Well, what's the situation with these folks? Why tell them to sell their possessions and give alms? Here's Peter standing there, as fisherman. What, my nets? An extra pot at home? A little jewelry? An heirloom? Jesus did not say to them, take some of your savings and give it as alms. He said, sell something and give it as alms. And I think the simplest reason is this. In this New Testament context... The simplest reason are two. The simplest one is they didn't have enough cash to give what Jesus wanted them to give. You, You may have a better solution. Why he told them to sell their possessions? I don't. They didn't have enough cash, which means they're poor. Basically. He's not talking to rich people here. He's not even at that point yet. These disciples are basically people who don't have cash to give to the poor. The second reason, I think, is that there is an impulse in Christianity to simplify, not accumulate. And it goes diametrically opposed to the American impulse to accumulate. Add and add and add more and more things, more and more clothes, more and more cars, more and more houses, more and more investments, more, 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 until our capacities to enjoy the simple things of life dry up. And the only thing we can imagine makes us happy is another thing. And Christianity comes along and he says, I'm your father, I'm your shepherd, I'm your king, I'm generous, I'll give what you need. Simplify. Simplify that you might live for the good of others. Now this impulse toward simplification away from accumulation is strong for two reasons. One, Jesus said in Luke eighteen twenty four, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now the word for rich there in Luke 18.24 is those who have things, pure and simple. No comment about the quantity of it. How hard it is for those who have things to enter the kingdom of God. And in chapter 8, verse 14, this is the very favorite theme of Luke. Luke, more than all the other gospel writers, is on to riches and their dangers. In 8.14, interpreting the parable of the soils, he says that the third soil is like seed sown where the riches of the world choke the word of God. And oh, don't we know what that means? Don't we know what that means? I mean, ask yourself honestly about the feelings of desire in your life and compare those desires between the Word of God and things. Be honest here. Does not the power of the desire for things rise like thunder compared to the weak little I guess I'm supposed to read my Bible? This is a huge danger. And Jesus focused on it again and again. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Therefore... There is from Jesus a relentless tendency toward simplification rather than accumulation. And if you do not voluntarily choose governors on your life, it will get totally out of hand. Choose some governors as you grow in your earning capacity. There is absolutely nothing wrong with earning big bucks. There is something hugely dangerous about keeping big bucks. Hugely dangerous. And therefore you must erect governors. Because if you let it go loose, it will master you. You find the governors. I have found some of mine some. And I'm still looking for others. So point number two is that when you trust God as shepherd and father and king, it carries a tremendous impulse towards simplicity and not accumulation. Third point, the purpose of money in the world is to maximize our treasure in heaven, not on earth. That's the purpose of money. Verse 33 again, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts that do not wear out. What does that mean? Definition. That is an unfailing treasure in heaven, in heaven, not on the earth, in heaven, where no thief comes and no moth destroys. The way to obey this command to make for yourselves purses or money belts that don't, Get old is to lay up treasure in heaven. And the way you lay up treasure in heaven is sell your possessions and give to those in need. The point of money is treasure in heaven. You are all stewards. Children, you get allowances. If you don't, tell mom and dad, I said, you should. (laughs) What have I done? You get fifty cents, twenty-five cents, dollar. Is that okay? (laughs) A week? The point of an allowance is to lay up treasure in heaven. How? By using it lovingly. Lovingly. And not selfishly. And when we use it lovingly and not selfishly, treasure increases in heaven. I take that to mean... The maximizing of our joy of God in heaven rises in proportion to our delight in him and our trust in him here that freed us to use our money aright. There's a correlation between the heart that grows in its dependence on God here Rather than on money and things and how we will delight in God and treasure God in heaven. And the reason you've all been given money, whether $300,000 a year or $15,000 a year, is to prove where your treasure is. Which leads me to my last very brief point. Number four. In verse 34, the heart moves toward what you cherish. And God wants your heart to move toward Him. Let's read that verse. For do all of this, that is sell your possessions and, and provide this treasure in heaven. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's a puzzling word to me. Here's the way I've thought it through for myself. The treasure, where your treasure is, the treasure is the object cherished. The heart is the organ that cherishes. The heart is the organ that cherishes, and the treasure is the thing cherished. So if your thing cherished is God in heaven, your heart will be in heaven, and you'll be with God forever. If your thing cherished is money and things on the earth, your heart will be pursuing those things and will be on the earth cut off from God, not in heaven. Which is why in chapter 16, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Serving money would mean cherishing money and doing everything you can to maximize the benefits of money in your life. Serving God would mean cherishing God and doing everything you can to maximize the benefits of God in your life. And you can't do both, Jesus says. If you do the God thing, you worship. Which leaves me now with this final word. We, in the middle of our corporate worship service, give offerings to the work of the Lord, the ministry and mission of the Church of Jesus Christ. These four points relate directly, therefore, From the general to the specific. The general is how you live all your life in relation to money. The specific is, what do you do at that moment? Sunday after Sunday, I say words like, let us now worship the Lord in our giving. Or let us worship the Lord with our money. There's a lot behind those words. I've shared about 30 minutes of it with you here. So let me translate those four points as we close into that three minutes of this service. When that moment comes, and the opportunity to give tithes and beyond tithes to the Lord, whether it's a widow's mite, or whether it's a millionaire's thousands, if it comes from the heart that says these four things it is worship number 1 this is what your heart would be saying as you take the check or the or kids as you take the nickel the dime the quarter if your heart is saying these things it is worship one i hereby trust you as my Happy, generous, shepherd, father, king. And I renounce the fear that will tempt me to be anxious in letting this go. I trust you to help me not be afraid to let this go. Two, I hereby, in this gift, resist the incredible American pressure toward accumulation... And I put a governor on my life at this point and I embrace and endorse and throw my lot in with the biblical impulse toward simplicity rather than accumulation. Third, I hereby in this gift lay up treasure for myself in heaven not on earth. And fourth, I declare that since my treasure is in heaven and I want to maximize my joy in God, my heart goes after you, O Lord God, and not after money. And that's the meaning of my worship as I give. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, Jesus talked about money and its dangers far more than he talked about sex. Far more than he talked about corporate worship. More than he talked about family relationships. This was the big temptation in the teachings of Jesus. I pray that we will take these teachings to heart. And that we will consecrate our lives now. That we will pray as we sing, Take my silver, take my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Not a mite would I withhold. It's all yours. I am only a trustee. Oh, show me how to sell and show me how to give, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.